All right, Choose FI, we're back. This is episode 19. This is the one that we have literally been teasing you with for the last two and a half months. Jim is in the studio today. We're going to be unpacking the stock series, and I am unbelievably excited about this one. Brad? Yeah, Jim is Jim is the man in this in this entire community. Jim is the one that everyone looks to. You know, every single one of our guests. Is he a, is he the godfather of yeah, Fi? I, I, I would go so far as saying that. And you know, every single one of our guests have mentioned the stock series. I know it has transformed my life. It's transformed Jonathan's life. This is Jim is is the guy who I mean I can say that sincerely. He has literally transform the trajectory of my investing life and giving you a level of peace about it. There, there's this uncertainty with how am I going to invest my money? What, where, where do I do it? What, what stock do I choose? How do I be a winner? I want to win all that went out the window and uh, the simple path to wealth, man. It's just, it, it's mind blowing. It just makes sense. You're going to read it and you're going to understand it. Yeah. And I, I went so far as to have a conversation just the other day with, with my parents. And uh, I was saying that it is literally the thing that I am most passionate about in life is now getting people to invest in this manner, not have an investment advisor to invest in Vanguard. And, and that is literally all due to Jim Collins, very simply. And honestly, I can say that this is the thing that I am most passionate about because it is one of the easiest things for people to fix. And it is such a high value change in life. So uh, just a sincere thank you to Jim for, for putting out the stock series. All right, guys. So I know you're thinking, well, where's the intro? You always, you guys have the intro. I'm waiting for it and we're going to do it. But just real quick, Brad and I, we're so excited about this episode and we've been teasing it for so long. We're going to do a giveaway. What we decided to do, we've told you how important iTunes reviews are to us and to encourage that today, this, this giveaway is simple. For every 10 people that leave us an iTunes review over the next two weeks, we are going to put that person into a drawing to win a, a copy, a free copy of A Simple Path to Wealth. And if there's one thing that people in the FI community appreciate, it's free. So that's for you. If you want to enter yourself in a chance to win the book, The Simple Path to Wealth, just go on iTunes, leave us a short written review, and then take a picture of the comment that you left and then email it to feedback at ChooseFI, or you can tweet it to us, whatever you want to do, but just let us know that you did it. And we will enter you in a drawing. And we're going to, for every 10 people that leave us a review uh, of this episode or of the show, we're going to enter you in a drawing uh, to win a copy of Jim's absolutely life-changing book, A Simple Path to Wealth. And without wasting any more time, let's go ahead and get this thing rolling. You're listening to Choose FI Radio. The blueprint for financial independence lives here. If you're looking to unlock the secrets to financial independence and early retirement, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and join a community of like-minded people who are getting off the hamster wheel and taking control of their lives in the pursuit of financial independence. Choose FI, your home for financial independence online. And we're back. So uh, we're in the studio today, Brad. Jim is with us and we're going to be unpacking the stock series. And we had to ask him because we weren't sure which way this was going to go, whether or not we we're going to try and do it all at once, which honestly, frankly, we didn't really want to do because 
we want to go in depth. That's what we do. We go through the concepts one at a time and we try to show you how you can implement it in your life. And Jim has agreed that he is down with that. So today, this is going to be part one. We're going to be unpacking uh, the first several articles of the stock series and just going into depth with it, making it a conversation, trying to figure out how we can implement a few of these things. And if you've never heard this information before, how you can take just a few actionable tips and incorporate it in your life today. And uh, I'm really excited to do that. So, Jim, welcome to the studio. Well, well, thank you very much. But I, I, I we just can't do this. I mean, I, there is no way I can live up to that introduction. <laughs> I, I think I'm just going to have to hang up now. <laughs> <laughs> he says I'm going home. <laughs> there is. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm blown away and, 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 and deeply honored, but, but as I say, there's no way I could live up to that. Well, thank you. But I think it's an, uh, uh, the least I can do considering the value that I've gotten from the content that you've created over the past five years. And I, and I can say that without reservation. Well, you are very kind. <laughs> let's, let's go forward and, and, and see if we can, if we can make it real. Love it. Make it real. <laughs> And I just want to say, Jim has been a, a true mentor to me over the last number of years. I've been lucky to meet him in person and, you know, speak with him on Skype and speak with him on the phone. And, uh, you know, aside from from his content, he is just one of the most genuinely nice people I've ever met. And, you know, just just a wonderful person. So you're going to obviously hear that on, on this podcast and in the series of podcasts. And, you know, just again, want to thank him for for taking the time to do this. I think it's it's just going to add a, a huge amount of value to our audience and and the entire five community. So thank you, Jim. So Jim, we can uh, start this anywhere you want, but uh, we thought maybe just for the sake of simplicity, we'd start at the beginning uh, with part one. There's a major market crash coming. And you said Dr. Lowe can't save you. I don't even know who that is, but maybe Brad, you know who Dr. No, Lowe is? No, no, no. Jim Philson. <laughs> I, I have, uh, you know, I have actually long felt bad about singling out uh, Dr. Lowe. I, I wrote that, uh, oh geez, maybe in 2012, something like that. And and as you pointed out, it was it was the very first uh, segment in the stock series, and it was triggered by an article that was in uh, Money Magazine, and that set my teeth on edge. And Money Magazine sometimes tends to set my teeth on edge. Anyway, Doctor, I have nothing against Doctor Lowe, and in my book, I recount the same the same story, but without identifying him by name, because I never dreamed the the blog would reach as many people as it did, but. But yeah, so I I don't want to smear the good doc, the good doctor. Although in in some of the addendums on that post, uh, it seems that he launched a uh, an actively managed fund uh, based on the principles in the Money Magazine article that I was objecting to, and and uh, that charged exceptionally high fees and and uh, disappeared under under the waves after after a couple of years of underperforming. So. Uh, that's yeah. I don't know what else to say about that. Well, and when you know when what, what he initially said in that in that magazine, I believe, was that buy and hold investing doesn't work anymore. That's the claim that he was making. That basically was enough to get you riled up enough to start creating all this content. Am I am I right about that? Well, that's that's part of it, and you know, we're testing my my memory a little bit too because <laughs> it's been a while since I've looked at that post and that article, but. As I recall, there were a couple of things. Uh, that was one of the key ones that, that buy and hold no longer worked. And as I, if I'm remembering correctly, it was because with all the various automated, uh, computer-generated trading techniques that, that were being employed on, on Wall Street by very short-term traders, 
things were moving at a much, much more rapid pace. Um, and that was one of his, his theses that, that, you know, buy and hold just didn't work. And, and, uh, so that was one thing I objected to. The other thing that I recall I objected to was that his, his solution was basically to hold a little bit of everything. I mean, sort of this massive diversification and, uh, I have some very specific objections to that. And, and, uh, so those were kind of the things that, <laughs> that set my teeth on edge when I read the article and, and prompted the post. So Jim, let's, let's actually take a real quick step back. I think a lot of our audience is very familiar with the stock series, but, but for mm-hmm. people who, who aren't familiar or who haven't read it yet, and, and hopefully everybody will, will head over to, to jlcollinsnh.com and, and check it out. And, but, you know, give us, give us the high level overview of, of your, of your theory, you know, and your, you know, how you go about your investing, what, what you talk about, if you were trying to explain to someone the stock series in, in five minutes, how, how would you go about doing that? Well, actually this, you know, while, while we were talking, I just pulled this, this post up so I could, I could take a quick look at it. And, and I, I kind of touch on that a little bit and it is, you know, the article is what prompted me to write the post, but one of the key things that, that comes out of it is this idea that there are certain gurus out there who are so knowledgeable about the stock market and uh, so well educated and have magic formulas that ordinary people like you and me and our listeners don't can't possibly have that, that we should all just follow in their footsteps and, and most often pay them enormously large fees. And there are no such people. But the stock market does have some basic characteristics that allow you, if you if you take the time to understand how what the stock market is and how it actually functions, that allows people to invest in it and prosper in it if you're willing to invest for the long term. So as I'm looking at this post, for instance, I have a couple of, of points that I make. One is that market crashes are to be accepted. Number two is that the market always recovers from those crashes. Number three is the market always goes up, and that's one of the more controversial things that I say, but it always trends up. Number four is that it is the best performing asset class of all time. Uh, Now, every now and again, people say, well, you know, you can make more money in real estate, but real estate has two elements that take it beyond just investing typically. One is that it's kind of a part-time job, so you have sweat equity. And the other is leverage. And leverage, of course, is a two-edged sword. We can talk about that more if you want to. Uh, number five, as I'm looking here, is is that, that the next 10, 20, 50 years are gonna have just as many problems and collapses and recessions and disasters as the past 50 years did. And that's also to be expected. And, and and the market will react to those things and it will continue to, to uh, march up. And uh, number six is that instead of panicking and cutting and running every time uh, the business media goes crazy when the market drops a bit, you have to toughen up and you ignore that noise and you understand that this is normal. The market does this thing as a normal part of the process of, of its continuing rise. And you stay the course and you're right out the storm. Um, number seven is that you do to, in order to do that, to have the intestinal fortitude to do that, 
You just have to know that these bad things are coming and they are coming and they will happen. They've always happened in the past. They'll happen in the future. People ask me all the time now, you know, with the markets going up pretty much unrelentingly since um, 2009, you know, when's it going to collapse and when's there going to be a problem? And I don't think we've had anything more than a 10% correction since then. I don't know. I do know that at some point we will, but I can't predict it. If you want, if you want to listen to somebody predicted, you can turn on uh, uh, CNN or or uh, MSNBC anytime, and and you'll you'll hear all kinds of people predicting what's going to happen. Uh, none of them really know because there are so many so many of them predicting things that at any given time, just about any possibility is being predicted. So if the market does something dramatic, either up or down, somebody will be right. Uh, just like somebody wins the lottery, but that doesn't mean that. The somebody who won the lottery knows how to pick winning lottery numbers. It just means that some set of numbers was going to come up and every set of numbers was was bought. And that just happened to be the person. And it's the same thing with all the talking heads who who claim they can predict the market. So that was kind of brings us full circle to the title of that post, which is there's a major market crash coming. And there'll be one after that. And there'll be another (laughs) after that. and, And none of it will matter if you... If you're investing for the long term, you're tough enough to ignore it and stay the course and uh, reap the benefits as the market goes past each of those setbacks in its relentless march up. So there's the stock series. Nobody has to do anything beyond that. Right, right, right. It's all done. (laughs) And I think that's basically wraps up your first article. And essentially what you did there is that's kind of your mind map. That's where that's kind of how you envisualized each one of these these first few points. And I think as you proceeded with the series, you then went into depth on each one of those. And the first thing you tackled, I believe was, uh, and this was in part two, you said, you know, the market always goes up. And I think you go into some real depth there. Yeah. What's, you know, what's interesting about the stock series, by the way, is, is when I first conceived of this idea to do this, I, I only had the first five posts in mind. It's up to about 30. I think now I forget it, 29 or 30. But I only had the first five in mind, and I thought that's all I was going to do. And uh, it was very well received, and it generated a lot of comment and question from my readership. And I have an incredibly astute uh, bunch of people who, who read my blog. And they started asking questions, and uh, and they were, they were questions that, it, by and large, that I hadn't considered that people would want to know the answer to. Sometimes when, you, when you're... Um, yeah, I've been I've been fooling around with this stuff for 40 years, and you tend to forget what you didn't know, and so you forget that other people don't necessarily know it. And so my readers were really the the guideposts of what became the the next 25 25 editions of the stock series, as they they uh, postulate things that well, what about this? What about that? You know, how do you how do you withdraw the four percent? What is the four percent? All that. Four percent rule, all that kind of stuff. But anyway, uh, the market always goes up. Yeah, that's uh, that's one of the, the the key things to understand if you're going to invest in it. I think there are a couple of key things. One is that that as we just talked about, the market is always going to stumble. It's always going to have corrections, which are defined as a ten percent drop, or a bear market, which is defined as a 20% drop or a crash, which is 30. I mean, those things are routine. Nobody can predict when they're going to happen, but 
it's just part of the process and you have to be willing to accept it. But underneath all of those setbacks, when you look at any chart of the stock market over any extended length of time, you see something dramatic. And the dramatic thing you see is that if you look at the left hand of the chart, it starts way down there. And if you look at the right hand of the chart, which indicates where we are today, it's way up, up there. That's awesome. Right. And that's what, so you need to understand, you can't predict those drops. You know, Warren Buffett uh, makes a great observation, and, and I'll get the numbers not quite exact, but he says that, you know, if you look at the last century, in 1900, in the year 1900, the market was about 600. And it closed the century uh, in 1999, at the end of that year, at something like 11,500. So it went from 600 to 11,500. And Buffett says, how do you possibly lose money in a scenario like that? And the answer is, as Buffett says, you lose money by trying to dance in and out of the market, by trying to predict when those drops I was just talking about were going to happen. And nobody can do it. Warren Buffett can't do it. Uh, I can't do it. All the people on, on TV claiming that they're doing it can't do it. So the best thing to do is is buy, hold for the long term, and, and ignore the noise in between. And the market will reward you for doing that. Yeah, Jim, one of the things that, that I always get caught up with, with investing, and I, I try to, after reading your stock series and, and really having this epiphany, is is the psychology of investing. And people get so caught up in, in the details, the, the timing the market, the thinking they can outperform just the overall, the overall market, thinking there's some genius that they have, or you know, just getting worried about these details and, and just stressing out so much about it. And for me, like I find that the biggest impediment to me investing properly is my own brain. And I try to take my brain out of it as much as humanly possible. And, and a lot of that has to do with, with your stock series. And, you know, it really comes down to, it feels like, like I've had that epiphany, like I've seen the light, which is, you know, low cost investing, specifically at Vanguard, you know, buying a piece of, you know, I know you love the VTSAX, which is the total U.S. stock market index fund. And it's, you're owning a little piece of every, essentially every publicly traded company in the US and you're buying that on a regular basis. You're just, you know, every single month or, you know, honestly with Vanguard, you can buy every single week. I'm just purchasing new shares of VTSAX at this ultra, ultra low expense ratio. And I know that I don't need to think about it. It's because I've, I've read your stuff and I know that, again, I'm going to screw it up because either A, I'm not going to invest. I'm going to be over invested in cash because there's that bubble coming or there, you know, there's a bubble and there's a market collapse coming and, you know, just all these other ridiculous things that I, that I make up in my own brain and, you know, just not worrying about that anymore. Just saying this is the path. And, and that honestly, that certainty has, has just helped me sleep so much better at night. Like I don't worry about my money. I don't, I just continually invest in VTSAX. I don't look at the market it's, it's like, uh, like uh, John Bogle has said, you know, I'll get the quote wrong, but it's something to the effect of if you keep putting money into, into mutual funds and you don't look at your statements and 40 years from now, 
when you're getting ready to retire, and hopefully for people listening to this, it's before 40 years, but, but in his scenario, 40 years, when you open that statement, you better have a cardiologist next to you because you're going to have a heart attack when you see how many millions of dollars it's going to be. And, you know, and I believe that right now. And, and I you know, obviously want to thank you. Thank you for that. There is a lot of psychology in, involved in it. And, and human beings are, are typically equipped with a psychology that is not very good. Uh, at dealing with, with the ups and downs of investing in, in the stock market. And the solution for that is, is to be aware of the fact that we're, our basic psychology is inclined to panic when things go against us. Our basic psychology is more concerned about losing than gaining. And so when you, once you understand that, that, in a sense, we are hardwired to do the wrong thing at the wrong time when it comes to investing, you're making the first step of, of understanding uh, how to avoid that. Now, the typical investment advice on how to avoid that is to, going back to our, our friend Dr. Lowe in the first post, is to have this broad diversification. And the idea there is that if stocks plunge tomorrow, for instance, or even later today, who knows, uh, if stocks plunge tomorrow, you will own all this other stuff that will make that plunge less less painful. And hopefully some of those things will be going up at the same time that the stocks are going that stocks are going down. But the problem with that broad diversification is somebody once once some some wit once coined it as diversification because the more broadly you diversify things your holdings, the the less chance you have for gains because everything because if you set things up so that anytime something drops something's rising, well, by definition, when that rising thing drops, then then you, you don't really have any chance to gain because you're always going to be offsetting. So I'm not a huge. There is a role for for some diversification, which which goes to the point that you made, Jonathan, and you may have to remind me to get there. So that's that's one point that I wanted to make. The other point that I was going to make is that this blog and by extension, the stock series and by extension, the book all came out of a series of letters that I started to write to my daughter back in 2010, 2011, about financial things that I wanted her to know. And she is somebody who has absolutely no interest in this subject. <laughs> and she said to me one time, and I have tried to beat an interest into her, <laughs> and that, that does not work for her. And one day she was home, uh, she's an, a young adult now, but, but uh, one day she was, when she was still in college, she was home visiting, and as I had uh, was prone to do, and one of my bad, many bad habits, I, I began to lecture her on investing, because I, I, I think it's so important. I think if you just get a few things you just understand some of the basic things like what we're talking about today, you just get a couple things right, it can have a profound effect on, on, on your life and the resources you'll have to broaden the choices you can make. Anyway, uh, she stopped me and she said, Dad, she said, I understand this is important. He said, I get that. I just don't want to have to think about it all the time. <laughs> and that was an epiphany for me because that's the way most people are. You know, I, I'm the aberration. I mean, people like me who like this stuff, we're the aberration. We're the odd ones out. We're, we're the ones that, that have our wires mixed incorrectly. 
most sane people have better things to do with their time than to think about investing in, in the stock market. But as I said, if you get a, if you get investing right, it can give you the resources to have a, 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 a much better life. Um, and so that's the approach that I've taken in writing the blog is, is I'm trying to write for people who really don't care about this. Now, here's a wonderful irony. When it comes to investing, and I, th I think it was, was you, Brad, who alluded to, to what Jack Bogle had to say about not paying attention and checking it 40 years and being amazed. When it comes to investing, the less you, once you get a couple of basic things right, like index funds and ignoring the noise and the ups and downs, once you get that right, the less attention you pay, the better off you'll be. And the more you tinker with it and the more you, you play with it and, and, and fall into the trap of trying to predict, well, you know, uh, Donald Trump is president. So does that mean the market's going to continue to rise like it did when he was elected? Or, or is it about to collapse if he doesn't get a health care thing done? I mean, you know, the more you get drawn into that, that the more you're going to do make the mistake that Warren Buffett was alluding to in the last century of trying to dance in and out and, and, and the more you're going to hurt yourself. Um, Fidelity did an interesting study not too long ago of the different classes of investors they have and to which class of investor, um, how those different classes did in terms of performance, because most people who invest in mutual funds actually make less money than the mutual fund itself than the performance of the mutual fund. So if the mutual fund is going up an average of 10% a year for 10 years, most investors will make less than 10%. You say, well, how does that happen? What happens because they try to time and they dance mm. and they dance in and out. The class of investors that Fidelity found that did the very best were dead people. <laughs> That's awesome. And that <laughs> sounds class, about right. Yeah, the I believe class it. that did second best were the people who forgot they owned the account. <laughs> That's so fantastic. obviously the people who are not trying to dance in and out and, and, and make those mistakes. So I write this blog for people who don't care about this stuff. And ironically, because they don't care, people like my daughter, uh, if she just buys VTX, VTSAX, which I tell her to do, puts as much money into it as she can, whenever she can, and ignores it otherwise, she will outperform over the next couple of decades every professional on Wall Street. And I'm not saying that lightly. That's what the research indicates. If you hold a VTSAX, a total stock market low-cost index fund for a couple of decades, you will outperform every professional on Wall Street over that same period. So, you know, that, that, that sounds fine. And, uh, you know, I'm saying this a little bit tongue in cheek, but people like Brad and, and myself, we just believe this stuff. We believe it to be true. And so we feel confident in it. But I think the number one thing you see with people uh, that are jumping in and out of the market is fear. And we all know that at some point the market is going to crash and it's not the little crash. It's not, Oh, it went down a few points, but it's the apocalypse, right? It's the world is over. The stock market's down 500 points. It's time magazine, 1987, Tell us about that. Um, 
Great, great question. And, and frankly, it's one of the things that, that I worry about when it, when it comes to my blog, because I started the blog in 2011. And I, anybody who reads through the stock series or the other posts in the blog will hopefully come away from, come away from that with an understanding that the market does drop uh, on a regular basis. And that that is just part of the process. And it should never be uh, it should be no. It should be no more surprising than than uh, if you live in New Hampshire as I do. That every winter you're going to get snowstorms. I mean that it just should be that that regular. But if you panic when that happens, and you sell when the market is plunging, you would have been better off not taking my advice at all. So. The first thing you have to, and going back now to, to Brad's point about psychology, and, and you know the old philosophers used to say, know thyself. So the first thing that anybody listening to this or anybody reading my blog or my book needs to ask themselves, they need to know themselves. And they need to be very, very sure that they won't panic, cut, run, and sell when the market drops. Because I promise everybody listening, the market will drop. I'm not predicting that's going to do that tomorrow or next week or sometime. I have no idea when, but I know that will happen. And I know that the only way what I talk about works is if you ignore that, if you don't panic. Now, it is very easy when the market has done nothing but go up since 2009 to say, well, of course I won't panic. Of course, oh, you know, and it went down 10%. Yeah, I got a little nervous, but I stuck it out. That is entirely different than surviving something like what happened in 2008. Let me, let me put some numbers on that so people can, can appreciate it. In 2008, uh, the market, as we all know, took a, a major plunge. And, and there were a lot of genuinely bad things happening in in the economy and the financial markets that were behind that. It wasn't, it wasn't as if this was just people being silly. There were some really scary stuff going on. And by the time you got to the beginning, and the market, by the way, hit its bottom, uh, its absolute lowest point in March of 2009. By the time you got to March of 2009, it had been rough. The market had been roughly cut in half. Okay. Now, it's easy to say, well, you know, yeah, could I, could I deal with losing half, losing quote unquote half my money? Uh, and I put losing in quotes because as long as you stay the course, you're not going to lose long term. If you sell, you're going to lose. Well, you know, yeah, I can take 10%. Maybe you can even sit there and say, well, I could, I could absorb a 50% loss. But consider this. When the market hit its bottom, nobody knew that it was hitting its bottom. And every smart person I know who was paying attention to this stuff in March of 2009 was predicting that it was going to go much, much lower. The predictions that I was hearing is that it was going to go from that point down another two-thirds. So let's think about what that looks like. Let's suppose that you went into the beginning of 2008 now, I forget exactly when it started to drop, maybe 2007. But at the very beginning of that, you had a million two invested, which is a nice chunk of money, enough to retire on for an awful lot of people. 
So you got a million too. And come March of 2009, you now have $600,000. Wow. You've lost $600,000. Now that's pretty horrifying. But now imagine you're sitting on your $600,000 and every smart person that you know is telling you that it's going to go to $200,000. Wow. Lose another two thirds. That's what you have to be prepared to absorb. Now, the good news is that the kinds of things that happened in 2008, 2009 are very, very rare. But I've also told my daughter that she can expect at least one of those in her, one more of those in her lifetime because they are not unheard of. They do, they do happen. And you can routinely expect much more frequent uh, corrections, which, as I said earlier, is about a 10 percent pullback. Um, uh, bear markets, which are like a 20, 20% decline or more, you know, but these crashes are when you get into the 30, 40, 50 plus percent kinds of things. So that's the question you got to ask yourself. Can you not just sit there and lose 50% of your money, but can you lose 50% of your money and still listen to all the news saying you're going to lose much more and still stay the course? So, Jim, you mentioned Warren Buffett, and I actually have a couple of uh, quotes from him, which, you know, I actually just pulled up while you're talking, which is, you know, he talks about, you know, most people are, are worried about selling when everything's going down. But he looks at that as, as buying everything on sale, you know, and he's saying it's uh, it's wise to be, quote, fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. And he followed up. That's one of his famous quotes. He followed up on that in his shareholders letter that just came out a couple of weeks ago by saying every decade or so dark clouds will fill the economic skies and they will briefly rain gold. When downpours of that sort occur, it's imperative that we rush outdoors carrying wash tubs, not teaspoons. And that we will do. And that is just such a great outlook on investing. You know, not only is he not selling when everybody else is, is worried, he's buying because he knows it's on sale. And that just struck me as something that, you know, you know, not to put myself in your mind, but that, that you would think. And uh, I was very impressed by that. That's a quote I have not heard, and, but I absolutely agree with it. So let me, I, you know, I, I just said some pretty scary stuff. And let me follow that up by saying, you know, I, I got a, a question comment on my blog recently. I forget which post it was, but basically it was a fellow who had written and, and he said, you know, uh, I have twenty thousand dollars that uh, I want to invest, and you know my wife and I have, have we've restructured our expenses, and you know we're we're getting on this path to financial independence that you talk about in the blog and the book, and and uh, we've restructured our expenses, and we're not going to be able to uh, put aside five thousand dollars a month, so we have this lump sum of twenty thousand and five thousand a month, and. And his concern was because the market has been up for a number of years and, and uh, what have you, that, you know, is, is this the peak and do I really want to invest my $20,000 and, and what have you? And of course, as I've said already in this conversation we're having, nobody can predict the market. So in my view, the best time to invest is, is, is as soon as you can. Now, somebody once said that a time in the market is much more powerful than trying to time the market. Uh, hopefully that makes makes sense. But I also said to him, for somebody like you, 
who is beginning on this path, here's the very best thing that could happen. Well, the very best thing that could happen to you is for the market to collapse before you put your 20,000 in. But let's suppose you you invested your 20,000. The second best thing that could happen is for the market to plunge 50%. That probably sounds really counterintuitive to a lot of people listening, but he's going to be putting in $5,000 a month in new money. And if the market plunges 50%, that means he's essentially buying stocks at a fire sale price, the same thing that Warren Buffett was talking about, uh, Brad, in the quote that you just mentioned. So I don't just tell people to that they have to absorb all these horrible things. There are, are ways in, in my world that, that you deal with it. Mm. One of it is, is the ways that this particular reader is. He is working, he's accumulating his wealth now. He's in what I call the wealth accumulation phase where he has an income and he is taking a significant portion of that income and diverting it to investments, which are ultimately going to buy his freedom. The lower the market is while he's doing that, the better. He's getting, he's getting more shares for that $5,000 each month when he, when he puts it in. So when the market drops, if I'm this guy, I'm, I'm celebrating. I get to buy stuff on sale. Now, the other, the other phase in your, in your investment life that's going to come is what I call the wealth preservation stage or the stage where you are now living off your portfolio and you no longer have earned income. So you no longer have that cash flow that is smoothing the ride for you. Right? So when you're earning income and you're investing a portion of it, and the market is, is very volatile, as we discussed, and going up and down, that continual monthly or, or weekly or whatever period of time investment has that smoothing tendency, and you, you tend to benefit from those drops. But when, you're, when your earned income stops and you retire, whether you do that at age 30, as some of the people in this, in this financial independence of movement do, or you do it more traditionally at age 60 or 65, at some point you're going to be living off that portfolio. So how do you smooth the ride then? And the way you do that, and this goes back to the little bit of diversification that I do value, is with bonds. So that's the stage that I'm personally in. And so if the market were to plunge tomorrow, I'm okay with that because I will take some of the bond money, which is now a bigger percentage of my portfolio, and shift it over to the stock side, and I'll be buying stocks at, at bargain prices. So I can live with the market no matter what it does. Jim, if you don't mind me asking, what percentage of your portfolio do you currently have in bonds? I carry 25%. 25 okay. Yeah, which, by the way, is considered very, very aggressive for somebody in my age and, and what have you. And we can talk about asset allocation and, and why I choose that at some point, if you like. Oh yeah, we definitely will. If you guys would indulge me for a minute, I want to read a couple other quotes from Warren Buffett that actually really tie into what Jim has been talking about. So, you know, it's funny in my mind, I, you know, Jim, you talked, uh, I think before the podcast about, you know, people considering you as, as this authority. And, you know, in, in my head, when Warren Buffett say some, says something and when Jim Collins say that, says the same thing, that's, that's golden for me. So, I mean, like, you know, I actually consider you on, this, on the same par as him in this regard. So, uh, yeah, let me just read this real quick from his 2013 shareholder letter. And it's, in the 20th century, the 
Dow Jones Industrial Index advanced from 66 to 11,497, paying a rising stream of dividends to boot. The 21st century will witness further gains, almost certain to be substantial. The goal of the non-professional should not be to pick winners. Neither he nor his helpers, quote, which are really investment advisors and the the like, can do that, but should rather be to own a cross-section of businesses that in aggregate are bound to do well. A low-cost S&P 500 index fund will achieve this goal. And he goes on to say, following these rules, the the quote, know-nothing investor who both diversifies and keeps his costs minimal is virtually certain to get satisfactory results. Indeed, the unsophisticated investor who is realistic about his shortcomings is likely to obtain better long-term results than the knowledgeable professional who is blind to even a single weakness. And then he goes, he finally goes on to say, my money, I should add, is where my mouth is. As what I advise here is essentially identical to the instructions I've laid out in my will. And he says, my advice to the trustee could not be more simple. Put 10% of the cash in short-term government bonds and 90% in a very low-cost S&P 500 index fund. I suggest vanguards. I believe the trust long-term results from this policy will be superior to those attained by most investors who employ high fee managers. And now, you know, that when I read that, I'm reading something that you would say, almost almost verbatim. I mean, that's that's remarkable how similar yeah, I, it lines up. I, I certainly I certainly agree with everything in that quote. I I'm not sure I could have said it quite as eloquently as as Mr. Buffett did. Interestingly, by the way, at the very beginning of that quote where he, he's talking about the the you know, last century beginning at 66, I had referenced that quote earlier in the conversation and as I said then, I got the numbers wrong. I think I said it started at 600 and went to 11,500, but I'll defer to Mr. <laughs> Close enough, though, certainly. It's, it's the point. Six, six, but it's still, yeah, the, the point is, is very well taken. One of the things, um, while we're talking about Warren Buffett, that every now and again, you know, I get, I get readers who uh, on my blog were really into investing and, and you know, they – they like the process. It's kind of a, a hobby. And, and of course, I'm not writing for them, really. I'm writing for my daughter. I'm writing for people who don't care about investing. And, and there is a tendency of these, of these more knowledgeable people to always want to be tinkering with it and always, you know, saying, well, well no, you can do better. And, and, and one of the, one of the, uh, and sometimes I hear this even from actually most often I hear it from people who are who are complimenting me, but they'll they'll say things like, well, you know, the advice that Collins gives is is really good for, you know, the average in, investor who doesn't want to put in the work. And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> no, it's good for everybody. If If I thought you could put in a little bit of work or even a lot of work and get better results than index investing, I would be writing a blog about what that extra work was so you would get the better results. I would certainly be doing it. I, I wasted decades trying to do exactly, exactly that. Um, every now and again, I'll, I'll, I'll get one of these people saying, well, you know, you say, meaning me, that, that you know, it, it's, a, it's a sucker's game to try to pick individual stocks and individual companies, and I do say that. Uh, but that's how Warren Buffett made his money. So I'm going to go do what Warren Buffett did as if, 
<laughs> I mean, as if Warren, you know, there is a reason that Warren Buffett is fabulously wealthy, lionized, and one of the most famous people on the planet. And that reason is that he has done something that almost nobody else is able to do, and that is to build a fortune picking individual stocks. That is an extraordinarily rare accomplishment. And to say that you're going to do what Warren Buffett did is, it seems to me, to be the height of arrogance uh, and, and, and foolishness, quite honestly. And, and I don't care how many books on investing you read. I, I could, or you, or you, Jonathan, or, or just about anybody on the planet could say, you know what? I, I am going to go and um, I'm going to engage Mike Tyson's trainer. And I'm going to go through Mike Tyson's training ritual. And, and you know, I'm, I'm going to have all the same people who taught Mike Tyson boxing. And 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 then I'm going to get in the ring with Mike Tyson. <laughs> of course, I think Mike Tyson is his prime, but I wouldn't want to get in the ring with Mr. Tyson even today. And to, th and to think that... The, that something good would happen if you did that. I mean, you know, there might there might be a a half a dozen people on the planet uh, when Mike Tyson was was in his prime who who had any chance of getting in the ring with him. And it's the same thing with you're trying to compare yourself to Warren Buffett. There might be half a dozen people on the planet who can play the game at Warren Buffett's level. And I don't care how many of your shareholder of his shareholder letters you read or how many of the book, you know, there are books written about how, how he invests. Um, you ain't Warren Buffett. Yeah. And it's interesting that Warren Buffett recognizes that when he uh, is recommending uh, to his trust that they, that he's, he's not saying, Hey, just continue doing what I've been doing. Yeah. That's not what he's advising them, is because he knows that what he's doing is what he's accomplished is extraordinary. What he is saying is go in index funds. Yeah, it's just such a low percentage play to think that you're the one genius out of seven billion that's going to figure this out, right? I mean, you know, essentially what we're saying is this is the smartest path for the vast majority of people, for 99% of people. 99.9. .9. Right, right. 99.99. I knew you were going to do it. Nice. You know, and, and it's just keeping, if you take it as a given that you can outperform the market, which you can't, you really cannot. You can't outtime the market. You're not going to be the genius that can come up with individual stock selection. If, if you take that as a given, then your best percentage play is to go for low cost index investing. That's, that's the only play. And, you know, we love Vanguard and, you know, honestly, we love Vanguard because you taught us about it. So, uh, you know, that's that's a huge thing for us. So when you take a look at, at the market and the ups and downs and the swings, I mean, how do you account for the business? So when you're buying an index fund, you're buying you're buying everybody. You're just following the index. How do you account for the uh, the businesses that are going out of business? You know, they're falling out of it. You have this you have this money invested in businesses that aren't going to be viable at some point and, and they fade away. How do we account for that with this index investing model that we're using? Uh, Jonathan, that's a wonderful question. So. Well, index investing is is counterintuitive in a sense, and it 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 took me from the time I became aware of index investing, and I want to say that was probably in the mid '80s, until the time I accepted it. It you know it took me a good 15 years, and part of the reason is you say, well, I mean, let's take a moment to define for our listeners what index investing is. Well, first of all. 
there is now index investing has exploded and there's an index for almost any specific sliver of the market. And that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about broad based index funds. And basically there are two, there's the total stock market index fund that I kind of prefer. Uh, that's the Vanguard version of that is VTSAX. And then there's the S&P 500 index fund, which Warren Buffett has mentioned. And by the way, uh, VTSAX is about 80% index 500. So they are, they are very, very close. And I don't care which one you prefer. Um, I can talk a little bit about why I have the slight perform, per, preference for the one I, for the total stock market, but that's incidental. You buy either one of those and hold it for decades and you're, you're going to do great. They essentially buy every publicly traded company within their index. So in the case of the index 500, that's basically the 500 largest companies uh, in the United States. Uh, as Brad uh, mentioned earlier in this conversation, uh, the total stock market index fund buys virtually every publicly traded company in the United States. That means you get some smaller companies and some mid cap companies. And that's that in a nutshell is the reason for my slight preference. The challenge with trying to buy individual stocks and individual companies is you never know what's going to happen with any given individual company. Any research you do, any uh, annual report or, or uh, what do they call it? The 10, it's so long since I've looked at one at, at 10K, I think it is. You know, any of the, the reports on, on a company, by definition, you're looking at, at history and you're trying to predict the future from history. The problem is that the company that's doing poorly today could very likely be tomorrow's great turnaround story. And the company that, that seems to be hitting on all cylinders today could be tomorrow's Enron. And, and the horror story that, that it could collapse without, without expectation. That's one of the things that makes investing in individual companies so incredibly challenging. The beauty of the index is now we don't have to care. So when I own VTSAX, I own every publicly traded company in the U.S. All of these companies and the people within them and working for them are striving to prosper. Not all of them will. Some of them, as I, as I say, might be the turnaround story that's about to happen, but some of those might really be about to go out of business. Some of those that are really hitting on all cylinders might collapse. Some of those that will hit her, hitting on all cylinders are just beginning their upward trajectory. The interesting thing is that when you own them all, some of them are going to, this is a process that I refer to as being self-cleansing. So the self-cleansing process is some of them are going to go out of business. They are going to drift down. Eventually, they will fall off the index, and they will be replaced by the new companies that are coming up that are, people are creating. You know, a lot of, if you look at some of the largest companies that, that are in the index now, they're companies that didn't exist 20 years ago. So there's all this new blood that is coming. And when you own the index, you are going to have some that go to zero, and you're going to have this new blood that continues to go up. And one of the things that relentlessly drives the index up is that if you have a company in the index that's going to go to zero, you can only lose 100%. It sounds like a lot, and it is. <laughs> but the corollary of that is if you have a company that's going up, it can go up 100%. 
or 200 or 300 or 10,000 percent. So the downside is limited and the upside is not. And the only way that dynamic is ever going to stop working is if the U.S. economy collapses completely. So we talked earlier about how the market drops and sometimes dramatically and in very scary fashions. But unless it goes to zero, it is always going to recover because those underlying companies are always striving to build themselves and, and, and to build the economy. And of course, if in fact the time comes when, when the economy really does go under and the dynamic I'm talking about does cease to work, there will be so many other problems that where our money is invested won't make any difference. And there is no place you will be able to hold your money at that point where, where you will be safe. Those are great final points on that. I mean, first of all, just that concept of the worst that can happen is the company loses a hundred percent, but then just the, there is no upside limit, 200, 300, a thousand percent. I mean, that's pretty easy. You can visualize that very quickly. One company goes down a hundred percent. Fine. We lose that one, but another company triples quadruples in value um, as the new blood is filling in. I understand that that makes sense to me. And I think I, I would find comfort in that um, if there were to be a market crash with a 40%, 50% drop. Well, and it, and it is the reason that, as we said at the beginning of this conversation, the market always goes up. That's the dynamic that's underlying that statement. So I sometimes I think when I say the market always goes up, people say, well, you know, you're just, it's gone up in the past, but we don't know that's going to go up. Well, that's because you don't understand what the dynamic is underlying it. Yeah. And I know when you say in that same point, this only works when you have index funds. If you're that's trying to. Absolutely. Yeah. The moment you stray away from low cost index funds, uh, you know, and you start choosing individual stocks, then all bets are off because individual stocks and of course, when you buy stock, you're buying a piece of a company, individual companies can and do go out of business all the time. And I, I suppose, you know, in the old days before index funds, the way you built a portfolio was you would do research on a bunch of, of, of uh, companies in a bunch of different industries, and you would try to, to, to pick one or two good, solid companies based on looking at, at their numbers and, and uh, their annual reports and what have you. You'd, you'd pick out a couple of companies in each industry, and that gave you the diversification. And, and you knew that some of them weren't going to work, but hopefully enough would that it would it would carry you forward. But that's not a you can't do that and then just set it and forget it. There was in the early seventies, um, for a short time there there was uh, something that became very fashionable called the Nifty Fifty, and the Nifty Fifty were fifty stocks. They were blue chip stocks. Blue chip stocks being like the big solid established companies that have been around for a long time. They're blue chip stocks, and people said, well, you know. You can buy these 50 companies and you never have to worry about anything again. You just own these 50 companies. Well, I mean, they were all 50 great companies in the early 1970s. And there were companies like Kodak and Polaroid mm. and Xerox, which were wonderful companies, but the future was not kind to them. Uh, and there was no Microsoft and there was no Apple and there was no Facebook and, you know, uh, so it's not stagnant. If you look at the, the Dow Jones uh, industrials, which are the 30 
uh, you know, people hear about the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and that tends to be how the the uh, TV reporters report on what the market's doing. And it's a pretty terrible way to report on it because it's only 30 very large companies. But you, you care to hazard a guess of, of that 30? And, and a guy named uh, Dow Jones uh, actually was the one who came up with the index in the late 18, I want to say 1885 or something. And originally it had 12 or 18 companies that he picked in from American industry. Care to guess how many of those original 12, 18 are on the index today? Brad wants to take a guess. Four. One. Wow. And it's General Electric, if anybody's huh. curious. Of course, General Electric wasn't even called General Electric <laughs> back in the day. All the other companies have either gone out of business or they've been merged or bought into other companies or they have been replaced. So the Dow Jones Industrials, those 30 stocks, and now there are 30 of them, they're continually taking stocks off and adding new stocks because the economy changes. And when you own an index fund, you don't have to worry about that because your index fund is changing with it. Yeah, and Jim, I, I just want to take like uh, kind of a pivot slash separate larger point about about stocks in general and you allude to this in the stock series which is you know when you're buying a stock most people look at it almost as like gambling right like you're just buying this piece of paper and that piece of paper may go up it may go down and i mean that's that's a fun, fundamentally incorrect way of looking at it you're you're buying an ownership percentage albeit a very very small one but you're buying an ownership percentage in that company and when you're buying a you know a share let's say a vtsax you're buying a tiny, tiny little ownership percentage of those 3,000 plus companies. And as you say, it's, you know, you're owning stocks is owning a part of a living, breathing, dynamic companies, each striving to succeed. And I mean, if you think about those 3,000 plus companies, I mean, how many workers must there be? Tens of millions of American workers working to succeed. And as you're saying, it's, it's self-cleansing. And, you know, it's, you look at it and you just say, wow, how could this, how could this not succeed? The ingenuity of, of, tens of millions of American workers over, over this time period, you know, of, of decades that, that it's just such a powerful concept to me. Well, you are, yeah. I mean, you, you have all of those people working to make you richer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, I'd rather and, be on that side of it for sure. Right. Right. And, and by the way, the only way that it can, it can not succeed is if, if America fails, you know, I mean, there are ways that it could not succeed. If, if for instance, there, there were a major war uh, fought on our soil and we lose, think Germany or Japan in World War II, then, yeah, everything we're talking about isn't going to work. Uh, so those are the kinds of, but short of that, as long as there is an American economy uh, and as long as, as, as uh, there are American companies that are, are being created and operating and that are being driven by this, this entrepreneurial spirit and in going through this self-cleansing that we go through by owning the index, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a winning, it's a winning combination. I will, I do want to go back to, to what you said about it because I think it's an important point and I, and I'm going to disagree with you very slightly. I think there are two ways to look at stocks and to buy and own stocks. And you alluded to what I think is the proper and profitable way to do it, 
which is to understand that you are actually owning a piece of a business, or in the case of your index, you're owning a piece of a lot of businesses, and you will prosper as that business uh, as that business prospers. But the reason people think that investing in stocks is gambling is because there is a way to invest in stocks that is gambling. So there is a there is a segment called traders or a group of people called traders who are just buying and selling pieces of paper or in this day and age bits on a computer for very short periods of time. These are the kinds of of stocks that are being touted on on the nightly news and the various stock programs. Uh, and the idea is you try to buy the winning stock and then you sell it before it becomes the losing stock and buy the next winning stock. And that's very much like gambling. That's very much like like Vegas. That is very much, as I, as I say in, in part three of the stock series, that is the foam on top of the glass, our glass of beer. So if you think of a glass of beer and you have uh, the beer itself, which are the companies that you own that are actually out there doing productive things and making products and providing services, and that's what we're investing in. We're in it for the beer. But on top of that, there's this foam. And the foam is all this activity that makes up everything we hear on on the business TV news and you tend to read in the business section or you tend to read in Money Magazine. It's all that froth where people are buying and trading and and trying to make money that way. And that is definitely gambling. And that is entirely different from what I recommend. To put that in a little bit of perspective, uh, one of the one of the major shortcomings, in my opinion, uh, in our educational system is that none of this is taught in high school or even in college. And on the rare occasion when it is taught, it's taught along the lines of, of uh, oh, let's have a stock picking contest. And it's usually taught by stockbrokers or, or financial advisors who will come into the school and and they're not teaching the kind of principles we're talking here. They're teaching, you know, let's try to find stocks that will do good in the next couple of months while while we're doing this course. And that's, it seems to me, is even worse than not teaching kids anything because you are teaching kids a way to invest in the stock market that is almost sure to bring them grief and loss. That's such valid input. All right. Well, this was this is going to bring us to the end of this first part. Frankly, we don't know how long it's going to take to get through this series. There are close to thirty articles that Jim has put together in this in this series, and it, it does seem to grow. Although I think he's kind of slowed down or come to the end of it along with the end of his book. Um, but Jim is going to come back up on the show and we're going to just do this the right way. We're not going to tell you how many parts it's going to be, but this is the distinct first part and we're going to, and Jim's agreed, we're going to come back on and we're going to just keep going through this and it's going to be a conversation and we're just going to talk through the philosophy. We're going to talk through the actionable tips. We're going to talk through the decision tree and we're going to take our time and we're going to do it right. And just whatever it takes, that's what we're going to do. So we're not going to do it week after week after week. We're going to drop it sporadically. But by the end of 2017, you are going to have the full stock series presented to you. And and I am unbelievably excited about how this first part came off. And I know you are as well, Brad. Yeah, this is incredible to hear Jim talk through it and, and talk through the real high level theory. It was just really a treat. So thanks again, Jim. 
and we had a uh, we had up we have a challenge out to our our listeners uh, forever. You know, if you love this, if this opened up your eyes to why we get so excited about VTSAX and index fund investing, we want to give you a free copy of Jim's book. Uh, we're doing it just for our listeners. Go on to iTunes and leave us just a short review about how you like this episode or how you like this podcast, and then just take a picture of it and uh, send it to us at feedback at choosefi or tweet it to us or share it on our Facebook page. However you want to do it, we'll take that information and we'll enter you in a drawing to win a copy of the free book. We're going to do one book for every 10 reviews we get. Um, so there's, you know, that's, that's a lot better than your lottery and you're helping us out and we're helping you out. And we're really excited to get a copy of this book into your hands. And so Jim is still on the show. So hang on, Jim, we are going to get to introduce you to our hot seat. I hope you're ready for it. <laughs> I don't know that anybody can be ready for it. No, you really can't. There's no way to prepare for this. <laughs> in a world drowning in debt and rampant consumption, Trapped by the chains of lifestyle inflation. These questions highlight the secrets of those who have broken free. Welcome to the Choose FI Hot Seat. Yeah, you did not know that was coming. <laughs> I'm still not sure what's coming. <laughs> we crack up every single time that's played, Just but it's, it's so great not to, <laughs> it's too good not to play. Yeah, but you guys, you guys are like our superheroes, man. So we had to have an epic Christopher Nolan uh, music score for this in order to do it right. So, <laughs> Cool. Kudos to whoever, whoever put that together. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. All right. Uh, question number one, your uh, favorite blog that's not your own. Oh wow, that that is a, that is a hot seat question. Um, there are, you know, there. Are, I don't know that I can narrow it down to one. Um, there's there's some that I'm just very impressed with. The Mad Scientist, Go Curry Cracker. They both routinely open my eyes to things that that I hadn't thought about or hadn't thought about in that way. I think that the blog that I'm most excited about at the at the moment that is new on the scene and. I think it's not even quite a year old, is Millennial Revolution, uh, obviously written by a couple of millennials, uh, Christy and uh, Bryce by name. Uh, I I first came, I don't know how I came across it, but Christy has a little video where uh, she really takes baby boomers to task in a a fairly harsh way. And of course, I am a baby boomer. And I was, uh, it had me me rolling and laughing because it, it was, it's so true. And one of the one of the one of her her lines that I, I like best is whenever they come across a problem or a question from their readers, uh, their readers, uh, she says, "Well, let's math this shit up." <laughs> <laughs> and I, there is nothing there is nothing like math in in the world of of investing in finance to make your point. So I, I just I love their voice and and you know I love their irreverence and and. Uh, in fact, I, I love them so much that that uh, at my invitation, uh, Christy is going to be a speaker both at our UK Chautauqua this summer in uh, England and in our traditional uh, uh, Chautauqua in Ecuador in, in October. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, that's And then the other one I'll throw out that I've just come across in the last week or so is the wealthy accountant. Oh, and, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so obviously I'm, I'm slow to the party on this one, but... Uh, Keith is his name, and uh, Keith, as it turns out, is uh, 
Mr. Money Mustache's tax accountant. And um, of course, Money Mustache is one of the great blogs out there. But but Keith himself has has a a really interesting uh, and well written blog, and uh, it first came to my attention when I noticed I was getting some traffic from it, and when I went over to look at the post where I was getting the traffic, uh, he was calling me a pompous ass. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great. That's a new post that just got released, I think, within the last couple of weeks, right? Yeah, so maybe if you do show notes, and well, yeah, it was just in the as I say, I just came across this blog. He's going to be coming on the show in a few weeks after you, and uh, and he's great. I don't think he's so prolific. I don't think I've met anybody that's quite as prolific. He just can't stop writing. He's fantastic, and he has a mind that just constantly races and applies life hacks constantly to tax optimization. So um, you well, and, and and other subjects too, yeah. and and I, I, you know, I'm I'm also equally impressed. And if you have show notes, you should link to that to that post, and your listeners can go on and decide, uh, or maybe they've already decided listening to this today whether I'm a pompous ass or not. <laughs> but, and by the way, I will also say, Millennial Revolution is impressive in in uh, how prolific they are. I mean, in the in the amounts of information they turn they turn out as well. But yeah, those are the two new ones that have come on up my horizon in the last, well, well, the account in the last, just in the last week or so, but millennial revolution in the last year. Yeah, no, we will list, uh, we will link to all of those in the show notes. Absolutely. And, and, and there are a lot of other ones so. out there that I'm, you know, I, I could probably actually, actually they're not a lot of wonderful blogs in my opinion, but, <laughs> but I could easily list probably a dozen and maybe, maybe more that are worth time. Cool. Yeah, that's great, Jim. And, and yeah, the show notes will be at choosefi.com forward slash zero one nine. So yeah, uh, definitely check that out, everyone listening. And Jim, number two, your favorite article of all time, either on your site or, or someone else's. Oh, my. Uh, well, I suppose that that depends on, I'm certainly not going to go to somebody else's site for this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that depends on what you mean by favorite. So my personal favorite, which is one of my less popular posts, uh, but I, I put it up just last fall, I want to say in October. Uh, I was actually in Ecuador, and uh, uh, my wife and I had gone down uh, before the Chautauquas, and uh, uh, we were in a little fishing village of San Clemente, and, and we were packing to take the car to the airport to go to Quito for that Chautauquas. And I was taking one last look at my email and I saw a, an email popped up from of all people, Jack Bogle. Wow. And Mr. Bogle, uh, somebody had brought my book to his attention and he sent me a personal, uh, email, um, offering his support and praise for the book. That's cool. And I wrote a post about that entitled uh, Mr. Bogle and me. Uh, I think I probably put it up in November or December or something like that. Uh, and that is because Jack Bogle is my financial hero. I mean, Jack yeah. Bogle's financial, uh, saint. Somebody, somebody once compared me to, Jack Bogle. They said, you know, you're doing, you're bringing the same kind of value that Jack Bogle brings. And I said, you know, Jack, if I've lit a, a candle in the darkness, 
Jack Bogle is a white hot son. I mean, there's just Jack Bogle is the reason we're having this conversation. I think you're just acting as a highlighter. You know, you're just going yeah. back over the content. You didn't write it. You just you're just highlighting it in a Jack, great Jack, way. Yeah, Jack Jack Bogle is is just on the off chance that anybody doesn't know who he is. Uh, he is the founder of Vanguard. He is the creator of index investing. Uh, he is a financial saint. Uh, he has given us all the tools to reach independent financial independence effectively and dare I say it easily. So that's that's my favorite. Now the most popular post on my blog. I'm not sure if it's the most popular, but boy, it's it's got to be in the top two or three is why your house is a terrible investment. And what's interesting to me about that post is I I sort of dash that off a little bit tongue in cheek. And it is the place, as I say, it's if it's not the most popular post, it's within the top two or three. And it has gotten me the most hate and the most love of anything <laughs> I've ever posted. It's it's amazing. Uh, so whether whether you're you love your house or your house is a scourge or you don't have a house and you never want one or you don't have a house and you pine to own one. Uh, you'll either love or hate this post. And by extension, you'll probably either love or hate me. And you can read through the comments and, and see what, what uh, people have had to say. All right, Jim, question number three, what is your favorite life hack? My favorite life hack. Well, I, on, on a, a small local level, um, I'm a huge fan of public libraries and, uh, you know, uh, I, I love reading and I'm a big advocate of reading. I think that if you are a reader, there is nothing you can't learn. There's nothing you can't know. There's no place you can't go. And that includes into the past and into the future. I mean, reading just vastly expands your uh, your range of life experiences. And uh, I don't see any reason to own books. And I know I've got a book out there. I hope everybody goes out and ignores this advice. <laughs> and buys it. Every now and again, people say to me, yeah, I just went to my library and I asked them to get your book. I think that's great. I think libraries are, are, are wonderful. I like to say, you know, uh, I have such an extensive collection of books that it has its own building, <laughs> its own staff, and they maintain it. And every now and again, if there's a book I want and uh, they don't have it, I, I ask them and they, they order it for me and it doesn't cost me a dime. So uh, that's my favorite, I guess, small hack on a, on a larger scale. My favorite larger hack, I guess, would be uh, uh, what's called uh, geographic arbit uh, arbitration. There are there are places in the world that are less expensive to live than other places. There are states in in this country that are less expensive to live than other places, and there are a lot of beautiful spots to live. So, for instance, um, New Hampshire, where I live is a very low tax state. We don't have an income tax. We don't have a, uh, we don't have sales tax. Uh, and it's a beautiful place to live. Uh, right next door is an equally beautiful state with a wonderful, actually next door in either direction of us, to the west, to the east, to Canada, of course, to the north, to the south. 
you know, we have Maine, Massachusetts, Vermont. Uh, they're all beautiful states with beautiful places to live. And they all have very high taxes. So, you know, if you want to live in New England, there's a geographic arbitration to be had by choosing New Hampshire. Uh, sometimes people say, uh, you know, gee, if I retire early and what if, you know, what if everything goes bad and the market plunges and, you know, I'm, I'm going to be, well, you know, if you're flexible, you can go live in Thailand or Ecuador or, or some less expensive place in the U.S. So I, I would say that's probably the big life, life hack that I would, uh, that I would choose. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, both of those themes have popped up before. Uh, we really see that with the high level thinkers in the Phi community. Uh, the library, very common theme, 1500 days, uh, passionate about libraries, frugal woods, passionate about libraries. Um, and also geo arbitrage, obviously, you know, go curry cracker, uh, very passionate about geo arbitrage, millionaire educator, very passionate about geo arbitrage. And I love that there's geo arbitrage that's international, but then also there's geo arbitrage that may just involve moving two miles across the border of your state to, you know, another state where it's a completely different tax situation. And I think there's just, and I hate to slow us down on this, but I think there's actually six states that have significant uh, tax advantages from an income tax perspective. Am I right about yeah. that, Brad? Yeah, yeah. there's six or there's six or seven. I, you know, Florida's one, South Dakota's one, Alaska's one, Washington State. I think Texas. Washington State's one. Yeah, I I, I, don't, I can't name them all, but yeah, there are there are a handful of states, and and you know you, I mean, people get hung up on oh, I have to live in California. Now, California is a beautiful state. I mean, I, I love traveling to California. I have friends in California. I, I understand absolutely the appeal of living in California. But, oh, my goodness, the taxes. Yeah. And every state has, has, has beautiful places to live. And, and, you know, if for whatever, I mean, it's your life. You know, if you want to live in California or any other, or New York, which is a high-tax state, I mean, that's, that's wonderful. Do it. I would suggest that you appreciate that you are paying a premium in, in the tax structure to choose that place. And there are other states that, that are also beautiful and, and have uh, great amenities that, that uh, don't carry those burdens. You know, and did you, uh, I talked about Millennial Revolution a little bit earlier. Uh, Christy and Bryce, who are in their early 30s, uh, they started their blog last year when they retired uh, in their early thirties being financially independent. And they, they are now doing what go curry cracker, what, uh, Jeremy and Winnie are doing, which is to say traveling around the world and living in different places. And it's interesting because they've, one of the things that, that they've observed in that experience is that because they live part of the, the year in Southeast Asia, which is so inexpensive, you know, they knew they had enough money to retire when they quit their jobs. And what they didn't fully anticipate, I think, is that because of this geographic arbitrage, that their cost of living would drop so dramatically. Uh, and, and that by extension, their, uh, their investment portfolio would have even more room to grow. Jim, actually, while you were talking, I was just looking up an article for the uh, U.S. states with no income tax. So let me let me I, we got the vast majority of them. According to this article on The Motley Fool that I'm reading there are seven. It's Alaska, Florida, Nevada, South Dakota, Texas, Washington State, and Wyoming. So we got nearly all what of about them. New, what about New Hampshire? It does not say that on this article. Here are the U.S. states with no income tax. 
Well, the reason it doesn't include New Hampshire, I'm going to guess, is because we do, New Hampshire does tax dividends and interest over $2,400. Yeah, actually, here it is. Sorry to interrupt, Jim. Yeah, there are two additional states, New Hampshire and Tennessee, that don't impose income taxes on wages, but they do collect taxes on dividend and interest income. So I guess that's that's the answer. So it's fine. I I didn't know that about Tennessee, but living in New Hampshire, right? Because I do pay that tax on dividends and interest each year. Cool. All right, Jim. So for this last question, we're going to kind of combine them together for you. Uh, Question number four, your biggest financial mistake or alternatively, the advice you would give your younger self? Well, we can kind of package those together because uh, if I were able to go back in time, I would tell my younger self not to make this financial mistake. And the financial mistake, I already alluded to it in our conversation, and that is it took me way too long to accept the validity and power of index investing. I think I mentioned that I, so Jack Bogle uh, launched the first index fund, I want to say in 1975 or 76, somewhere in there, which incidentally is, is the same year that I began investing. Uh, I want to say I first became aware of index funds about 10 years later. So in the mid 80s, let's call it 84, 85. Uh, But then, as I said earlier, it's so counterintuitive in a sense. You look at indexes, you look at the index and you say, you know, if only I, I don't even have to pick the winners to beat the index. All I have to do is avoid the dogs. And it just seems that it should be so easy to beat the index. Uh, but it's not because, as we talked about earlier, you know what it looks like today's dog is is tomorrow's great success story. Yeah. Uh, and the research is and now there's forty odd years of re- more than forty years of research that just validates that index investing outperforms consistently. But it took me fifteen years, at least fifteen years, to accept that. So I wasted fifteen years with buying individual stocks and actively managed funds and basically trying to outperform the index. Uh, I actually achieved financial independence with individual stocks and and actively managed funds. So one of the other things that that confuses people is they say, well, gee, I make money picking. I've made money picking stocks or I've made money with this actively managed fund. I did too. It's not a matter of that one doesn't work at all and the other one works. It's a matter of which works better. Yeah. And I would have made more money, much more easily, much more reliably with the index fund. So if I could go back in time, uh, if I could really go back in time, I would have made myself aware of index funds and would have embraced them in 1975 from the very beginning and done nothing else. Uh, short of that, I would have made myself smart enough, wise enough, insightful enough to accept them the moment I did hear about them in the mid-80s. And one of the reasons that that, uh, I'm not terribly patient with people who argue against index funds, uh, even today, is that I made all those same arguments for 15 years. All due respect, I could probably make them better than most people who make (laughs) them today. Um, I just hope that those people who are still making that argument aren't as slow and stupid as I was. And it doesn't take them 15 years to realize the mistake. Yeah, that's great stuff, Jim. And I guess our last little bonus question we like to throw in, what was your favorite purchase that you made on Amazon.com or you know anywhere, any kind of purchase you made last year, your favorite purchase? Huh. 
Well, this this is both. I, I'm laughing because I, I I don't like to own things, nice. and so I buy almost nothing, and that that both makes this a very hard question and a very easy question. So the only thing I can remember buying in the last year, or at least in the last several months, was probably about three or four months ago. Uh, I bought a new electric razor on Amazon, <laughs> actually, nice. and. I bought a new electric razor because my old electric razor, which I'd had for decades, finally died because I, I'm one of those weirdo people who actually wears stuff out before I buy something new. That's awesome. And I love my new razor because my old razor was, you know, it had a cord and you plugged it into the wall. The new razor is rechargeable. So it has a cord, but <laughs> it charges. And now when I actually shave with it, I don't have a cord. I'm yeah. genuinely excited to see the exact razor. Yeah, that you Jim, picked. we're definitely going to ask you to send us a link. We'll put that in the show notes so everybody can see the uh, the Jim Collins favorite razor. I, I get think. so excited to hear the answer to that specific question, just because we know that in the Fi community we don't buy stuff. We just, I mean, I do, but most people in the Fi community don't buy stuff. So to find out the one thing they purchased last year to me is hilarious and awesome. Well, I will. I will try to find you the link. I'll have to actually look at the razor to see which one I bought. I bought. I bought, as you might have guessed already, I bought one of the cheaper ones they offer. <laughs> uh, but the but the beauty of it, I never, I, you know, I would have replaced my old razor much sooner had I had I realized how much I was going to enjoy being cordless. Because now when I'm shaving, what I do, this is probably a lot more than any <laughs> ever, ever wanted to hear. But now what I'll do is is in front of the mirror, I'll shave up around my sideburns, you know, just to get them. But once you've done that. You don't need a mirror. So I'll walk around shaving and do other things, you know, while I'm while I'm running the shaver for <laughs> my face, which is a very liberating experience. Well done, sir. That's so cool. I'm easily pleased. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's super cool. And and hey Jim, I'm I'm with you on the not wanting to own anything. I mean, geez, if it were up to me, I would own maybe one suitcase worth of clothes, a laptop, and that's about it. I'm with you on the not owning a house, nothing. I mean it's just in this day and age, like you said, with the library, you know, you don't need to own things, you know, I mean, it, it, there's really no need and it just it weighs you down. It's expensive. You have to store everything. It's got it. Yeah. In my perfect world scenario, it's own nothing. Well, if if all goes according to plan, uh, as I think, you know, Brad, and, and I don't know if you shared this with Jonathan, but uh, we sold our house uh, about three years ago and we have been happy renters ever since. And if all goes according to plan, when our lease is up this fall, uh, we intend to let the apartment go, uh, get rid of a lot of our stuff, put the few things that we, that we want to keep, uh, which are things that we've collected on our travels for the most part into storage. We're going to load up the jalopy uh, with the dog and a couple of suitcases. And we're going to spend the next year, uh, I'm calling it our experiment in hotel living. And uh, uh, I don't know. It's it, We're going to wander around the, uh, the U.S. in the car with the dog and partially as a scouting mission to decide where we might want to live next, uh, partially to, to do it and to see what living in hotels is like. And maybe that's what we do on a semi-permanent basis. But, uh, yeah, the idea of, of having nothing more than what's in a suitcase uh, – uh, has a lot of appeal to, to us too. Very cool. Well, Jim, uh, let's see. So our audience, 
they I'm sure they're going to want to connect with you. And some of them are not going to want to wait for our next episode to drop on this. And they're going to want to go read more about the stock series. So how uh, would you recommend that someone connect with you if they want to get integrated into your community? Well, it's the blog is the way and it's JL Collins NH.com. JL are my first two initials, Collins, C-O-L-L-I-N-S, last name. And NH for New Hampshire, which I had to tag on because all the variations of my name were taken when I was looking for <laughs> URL. So jlcollinsnh.com takes them to the blog. Uh, across the top of the blog, they'll see a series of buttons. One of those buttons is labeled Stock Series if they want to start reading through that. Uh, if they're interested in The Simple Path to Wealth, which is my book, there's a link to that will take them to Amazon to, to buy the book, or they can trundle down to the library and ask for it or ask the library to order it. I'm, I'm good either way. Uh, the book, by the way, is, it was it, real quickly, it was kind of interesting to me. When I was doing the book, the advice that I got from multiple corners was, be sure you put in information that's not on your blog so people have to buy the book. <laughs> That's advice that I ignored. Yeah. So there is nothing in the book that is not on the blog. What the book is, and I think there's value in this, the book is more concise. Uh, it's better organized because, as I alluded to earlier, the stock series, other than the first five posts, sort of came together as people suggested things. So the book takes all of that information and some posts that are not in the stock series and and puts it in a little better organization, and the writing's a little more polished yeah. than, than you get in blog posts. So the book is is a more concise, better polished, better organized version of what's on the blog, but there's nothing in the book that you can't find on the blog. So you don't have to buy the book, uh, and even if you want the information in book form, you still don't have to buy it, because you can go and tell your library to buy it or just get it from the library if they've already got it. All right. Well, this was just absolutely, absolutely awesome. I I loved every single part about this. I don't know what part I liked most. Uh, This was bringing to life stuff that I've read and just was soaked up the first time I read it on his blog under the article series. I've literally had a vision of having this conversation with him for two years. Uh, I've been wanting to do this forever. Just walk through it piece at a time, not being constrained by time. Yes, you're in at an hour and 30 minutes. And yes, you better like every second of it and appreciate it because this this information, being able to just soak it up slowly, this is going to be worth millions of dollars. Yes, I mean it. Millions of dollars. Start now. I don't care if you're hearing this in your 20s. I don't care if you're hearing this in your 30s, your 40s, your 50s. You know, this the math works for you. And this is why. This is why Brad and I get so excited about it. The simple path to wealth and just unbelievably excited about how this went. Brad, do you have any final thoughts on this? No, just a big thank you to Jim. I mean, this was wonderful. I enjoyed every second of it, and I'm sure our audience did as well. It's just just a real pleasure and treat to have Jim on, and I'm so thankful that he took the time and that he'll be back for more episodes. I mean, it's we're really, really fortunate. So a big thank you to Jim. What a treat. Choosefi.com slash 019 for the show notes. Go there, check it out. Check out all the really cool links. If you want a free copy of the book, please just send us or do a review on iTunes. Take a picture of it. Send it to feedback at Choosefi. We want to get you that free copy. You've been listening to Choose FI Radio Podcast, where we help middle-class America build wealth 
one life hack at a time.